I did not know Priscilla lives in a barn with no electricity. That poor thing. I need to pray for her. You remember several weeks ago we had a, a couple in here that was on their way to the Middle East, and I had uh, them share with you. Uh, they had been praying that God would double their support, and uh, I found out this week that an individual came up and said he was good for several thousand dollars a month for them. Yeah, isn't that cool? I said, please don't get my name out, but I, uh, <laughs> uh, that is, uh, that's, that's astounding, is it not? And that's exactly what they've been praying for, and God provided for them in that way. That's really, really cool to hear. Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4, Acts 4. In his book, Vanishing Grace, Philip Yancey writes about a Muslim man who told Yancey, and I quote, I have read the entire Koran and can find in it no guidance on how Muslims should live as a minority in society. I have read the entire New Testament many times and can find in it no guidance for how Christians should live as a majority. Yancey comments, Christians best thrive as a minority, a counterculture. Historically, when Christians reach a majority, they have yielded to the temptations of power in ways that are clearly anti-gospel. If you'd like to live as a minority Christian facing persecution, you might consider some of these countries that are the top countries for persecuting Christians, and I'll give you these in order in terms of intensity, the first being the most intense, North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen. Most Christians are being persecuted around the world than any other group in the world. That does not fit the Western media narrative, so it rarely gets reported except in extreme cases. Consider these facts. 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month around the world. 322. Add to that every month, 214 churches and properties owned by Christians are destroyed and 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians every month. I mean, how are we to respond to persecution? While the liberties and the freedoms of believers are not guaranteed in this country, I believe that the way Christianity is presented in the Western world is a lot different than how it's presented elsewhere, especially where you have this kind of persecution. I read with great interest an organization called Asian Access. It's a Christian mission agency in South Asia. It listed a series of questions that they have asked for all of their church planters to give to people who want to be baptized. Of course, when you're baptized, this is now a a public proclamation that this is who you're going to follow, being Christ, right? Now, 
Asia Access did not mention the country because they did not want reprisals, but this country is predominantly Hindu. And apparently in this country, Christianity has grown the past couple decades, especially among the poor and tribal people. So these seven questions are asked of everybody before they make this public proclamation to follow Christ in baptism. Here they are. I ask you, these are questions you probably never heard when you were followed up here in the U.S. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Number three, are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Number six, are you willing to go to prison? And of course, number seven, are you willing to die for Jesus Christ? Sobering reminder, is it not, of the cost of following Christ for other brothers and sisters in other countries. To me, it begs the question, how are we to respond when there's pressure on us? Now, in the U.S., I don't know how much longer it's going to last. We enjoy some freedoms. Uh, But there is also pressure. There's social stigma. There are people that I've read about who lose their jobs over their faith. Families who reject them. If you want to term that as persecution or pressure, I, I suppose you can. But how, how are we to respond in those cases? Uh, Peter and John, I think, certainly set a very good model for how we can respond here in Acts 4. What has happened is that they healed a lame man. And the religious authorities have come before them to question them about this healing. What power and name did they, did they heal? So they're questioned by their religious establishment. And the example that Peter and John set, I think, make a good model, a good challenge, an encouragement. And frankly, I cannot read this passage. In fact, it's kind of been the, the case for all of Acts. I mean, i got to tell you, it is kicking my can. And there is a, there is a visceral reaction when you read these stories and just saying, all right, What does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? And how do we, as common people, conjure up the courage like Peter, like John? I think it's easy to say, well, you know, they were apostles. I mean, look at those guys, man. I mean, they were going after it. And, you know, God just gave them, you know, special privileges, blah, blah, blah. Listen, the the minute you think they're not common, don't forget that just a little over a month before this, Peter denied Christ. And now here he is, just willing to just lay it down before this Sanhedrin council. It's quite amazing. What happened between right before the crucifixion and here in Acts 4? Well, what we see is the resurrection and then the filling of the Holy Spirit. Two significant events that gave these men incredible courage. Common men, fishermen, not well trained. Describe any of us? Common people with a godly courage. Let's stand as we look at the story.
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. When Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God, we cannot conjure up courage in and of ourselves. We cannot muster it by virtue of just our willpower. This is clearly something supernatural, but not out of reach for us. In Christ. For we know that you've not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And Lord, may we live our lives with great humility, but with a boldness, a holy boldness. Lord, not not purposely being offensive, not being ignorant of social norms, not getting in somebody's face and being rude, but Lord, humbly proclaiming the truth when appropriate, courageously presenting the gospel, going where you have called us, willing to obey at any cost. Make us that kind of church, that kind of people who will follow you, who will honor you, who recognize discipleship as a part of our responsibility to let you be Lord of every area. So Lord, take this story, meld it to our hearts. Thank you for this example. Thank you for your movement throughout history. And may we learn from our dear brothers today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Our passage says that as Peter and John were speaking, these temple officials came upon them in the original language that those words actually have some force. It, it, it can be translated elsewhere to overtake or even to attack. It'd be safe to say that these religious authorities were angry. They were ticked. And they had an intimidating posture with these two. Who are these people? Well, it says that they are priests. And priests officiated over the temple sacrifices. There were usually 24 groups of priests, and they would serve each group for a couple weeks throughout the year. 
And then there was the captain of the temple. He served uh, as a head of like a police force for the temple, which was composed of Levites. So the security team maintained order. And one thing Rome did not tolerate was disorder, mayhem, or any sign of a revolt. So the temple had kind of their own bouncers, if you will, who made sure that everybody kept in line. And then you had the, 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 the Sadducees. These were a, a religious party that ran the entire temple operation. The priests worked under them. Now, they were different than the Pharisees in that the, the Sadducees were kind of more liberally bent. They did not believe in the resurrection. They were loyal to Rome. They maintained the status quo. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were much more vigilant. They were nationalistic concerning Israel, and they were legalistic when it came to the law. People understood that the Sadducees ruled the roost when it came to the temple activities. They were the power brokers in everything pertaining to the temple. And by the way, they lived a lavish lifestyle to match. They were living high on the hog, okay? Because they had the power, and they did not want any of that disturbed. Verse 2 says that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because Peter and John were proclaiming the resurrection. This not only came against the theology of the Sadducees, but it was like a slap in the face to these well-schooled keepers of the law. It would almost be like a person without a GED walking into a, a synagogue or a mosque, and there is a you know, there's a well-schooled in their religious tradition, and you stand up and you challenge the person. I mean, who would do such a thing? And then you start talking about Christ. I mean, these religious officials were, they were annoyed. They were agitated. And we can see, you know, see them just shaking their heads in disgust. Now remember, Peter has already called for this group to repent. Apparently, about 2,000 people came to Christ at this event, and we know that 3,000 came to Christ before this, so there's a total of about 5,000 people, according to Acts 4.4, who had come to Christ. However, this council that's referred to in verse 15, the, the, the Sanhedrin, kind of the Supreme Court of Israel, they're not about to repent. They've heard all that Peter has to say, and now they're just more dug in. And so they respond with this kind of hostile confrontation. Now remember, they are the religious institution. And I think there's a good lesson here. That institutional sins, especially of religious organizations, they're the hardest to admit, the hardest to change. Now, you have institutional sins of jobs, even, even, you know, a family culture. But for a religious institution, when there's things that are dirty, things that are not right, it's the hardest to change. Why? Because, hey, I got God on my side. 
And it creates this kind of special kind of arrogance about your sin. And listen, evangelical Christianity is not immune to this. And the, the way now that the, the, the you know, conservative right political wing and the evangelical Christianity is fused together is extremely troubling. I call that an institutional sin where we are seeking more the kingdom on earth than the kingdom of heaven. We care more about all of these other issues going on, take our Facebook posts, shut people off with our diatribes, and the gospel, well, you know, if I can, maybe. We're willing to ruin relationships for the politics, and people can't see the gospel. That's a problem. And in my book, that's a sin, because something's more important than the gospel. And it's just so, it's so encultured in the church. It's a hard thing to change. These Jewish leaders did not want to ruin the gravy train. They did not want to upset what they had going because they were enjoying, they were being the recipients of some good cash coming in. They didn't want to upset what was going on. And they're not about to let two unlearned fishermen create an uprising, especially over a man that they had already, they thought, taken care of when they crucified him. And their hands are still reeking from the blood of the crucifixion. While Peter gets ready to face them once again. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So Peter and John found themselves in overnight lockup because time had already passed for them to meet with the Sanhedrin. Now, if we follow the timeline, you might remember that uh, they, were praying, they, they were praying when this man was healed at, at about 3 p.m., and then Peter's preaching until the evening arrives, which is 6 p.m. I mean, at least three hours Peter was preaching. Now, what that tells me, you guys have nothing to complain about. You think you have it bad with me <laughs> with long sermons. They had no padded seats, no coffee breaks, three hours. <laughs> You guys are thinking the Super Bowl pregame is at about 12.30. Make sure you're done by then. Of course, I never think that way. (laughs) Verse 4 says, 5,000 men had come to Christ. What's interesting about this, that word for men is gender-specific. There's one that's kind of for mankind, means men, women, everybody. That's not the word. This was men. And so this is obviously a very patriarchal society. That's just the way they recorded the crowds, right? So if you add, now this is conjecture, but if you add women to that and children, I think it's safe to say there were at least 10,000 That's a daunting number to the Jews since it represented about 20% of the population of Jerusalem. 
I mean, just when Satan and his allies think they have snuffed out the gospel, there are voices that are gaining steam about a resurrection. Life had defeated death. People did not need to read about all these arguments about the existence of God in a book. What they had before them were live eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And the sad fact is there were still tens of thousands of people who were still holding on to a cold, lifeless religious system. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So the plate is now set, and I can imagine how these people slept at night. I mean, these are the rulers, the elders, the scribes. They were the graduates of the religious schools. They were educated. They were the authorities in all matters related to the Jewish law. They've got these two right where they want them. It tells us who these characters are. Annas, he functioned as a high priest from A.D. 6 through 14. And he's called high priest even though it's past the time. And it was actually customary for people to be referred to as high priest even though they held the position in the past, just like we refer to President Carter or, or President Bush, right? Um, uh, even though they're retired. Annas had arranged for five of his sons and his son-in-law to take over after him and also to become high priest, making sure that this power was kept in the family. Uh, history tells us that he amassed a fortune by ripping people off in the temple. Uh, there were, you remember the temple markets where people would come and they would, they would buy meat that had been sacrificed to, to um, the sacrifices. And the extra stuff was sold in uh, the, the temple area. Well, Annas controlled the in- inspectors. He controlled the money, the inspectors of the food. And he was kind of like the mob boss of the temple. So he had basically was continuing to have uh, money and income from this corrupt system. And it was Jesus, you might remember, who went to Annas first in John 18.3 after his arrest. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. He was the current high priest, and he held his office from A.D. 18 to 36. He served as head of the Sanhedrin. John and Alexander, most commentators think, were probably related to Annas. So here's the Sanhedrin. Seventy men who sat in a semicircle, plus the high priest. And this esteemed council get Peter and John standing before them. Can you imagine how intimidating that would be? People that are after you, they are not your friends. You are set before them to answer. And they say, how is it you were able to do this? In whose name, whose power was strong enough to do this? Now remember, they have already regarded Jesus as a blasphemer. 
because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and they've rejected that. So if these two claim that it was Jesus who gave them the power, then they're going to count them also as blasphemers. However, there are two huge facts facing them about their propositions. Number one, Jesus, the man they spent considerable time killing, bearing, rose from the grave. (laughs) And there were eyewitnesses to that. That's a problem. (laughs) And then they have a man who they knew for 40 years was lame, was at the, the steps of the temple, and now he is undeniably healed. You can't argue with that. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love this note that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. God gives us the ability when we are in tough situations, whenever we are in a pressurized situation, particularly if we are, if we are standing up for the word of God, for the gospel. You don't seem to have the words. The God of heaven can fill you with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the end times, Christians will be severely persecuted. We read in Luke 21, 12 through 15, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And then Luke 12, verses 11 through 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so what we have in Acts 4.8 is the fulfillment that God making good on that promise to the disciples. In verse 9, Peter says, So if you guys are putting us on trial for actually healing someone, which is kind of crazy in itself. We want to make sure you know that it's in the power and in the name of Jesus Christ. I can just imagine Peter wasn't exactly, and it was in the the power and the name of, of, of Jesus? No. I think he stood straight up. And I think he proclaimed it so everybody could understand. What court puts people on trial for helping someone? For healing a sick man? Who does that? P- 
Peter starts by saying, you are questioning me for doing a good deed to a sick man. If we are arrested for doing a good deed, then doesn't that make this an unjust court? (laughs) And this man was healed in the power of Jesus. And let me remind you, by the way, Peter says, it was this same Jesus who you had killed. Oh, and by the way, he rose from the dead. Uh, That verifies that he indeed was the Son of God, the Messiah. How can you argue with a resurrected Christ and a lame man who is completely healed? Peter then takes two Old Testament passages. He sheds more light on Christ. He says the stone that this is taken from Psalm 118, 22, and then from Isaiah 28, 16. Psalm says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then in Isaiah, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who's laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Jesus is the very stone or foundation. And he's the capstone. He's saying that Jesus is the foundation of life. He's the fulfillment of all of the hopes of every Jew. In him, Abraham, Moses, and David, they had their dreams realized. Jesus was the Messiah, and you guys killed him. You, the very ones, are supposed to point to God. You killed his son. And Peter says the same thing in chapter 2. He said it in chapter 3. He says it here in chapter 4. And he says it again in chapter 5. Apparently, the Sanhedrin was hard of hearing. (laughs) It is only in his name that we have eternal life. Only in Christ can our sins be forgiven. Not through some elaborate, corrupt religious system. Not through some philosophical system where we deny words like sin and forgiveness. Because you know what? We're all aware of it. We just got other names for it. Even atheists won't use the words, but they've got to deal with their sin. And they have to practice forgiveness, which doesn't make sense if there isn't sin, by the way. They have to practice forgiveness if they want their relationships to last. See, God has a moral order that we cannot escape. And everyone sins, every one of us. And everyone everyone responds in some way to their sin, some deny, some try to cover it up with a bunch of arguments, some try to cover it up with religious deeds. And some never stop to even, even hear their own heartbeat. They have to be online, they have to have some music going or some other noise. They cannot be alone with their own thoughts because their thoughts condemn them. Everyone has a sin problem. Everyone needs forgiveness. And only God can clean the heart. Only God can truly forgive our sin 
so that there's no shame, no condemnation, and my conscience is clean. Praise God. He separates the sin as far as the east is from the west. And there is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. And if the time comes when social pressure is applied to us someday, or even physical persecution, may we have the confidence, my dear friends, that Christ will empower us, that he will give us common people courage. Let's pray.